So this is a mm. double tip because it's about time too. So one of the ways is to work on your novel while you're doing everything else in your life. And the thing is to have this double consciousness. So say with Nick, I will be going about doing all the stuff I had to do in my day and everything I was noticing or reacting to, I would also be thinking, how would Nick react to this? Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. Today on the convo couch, I welcome Emily Maguire. Emily is the author of six novels, including the Stella Prize and Miles Franklin shortlisted An Isolated Incident, and three non-fiction books. Emily's articles and essays on sex, feminism, culture and literature have been published widely, including in the Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian, The Observer and The Age. Emily works as a teacher and mentor to young and emerging writers, including a year-long Write Your Novel class at Writing New South Wales and was the 2018-19 to 19 Writer-in-Residence at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney, which I'm pretty sure had a lot to do with the research she underwent for Love Objects. Love Objects is Emily's latest novel. It's why I'm here with her chatting today. And I have to say, when I read Love Objects, I was blown away with the way that Emily portrayed her characters, the level of skill involved in the characterization and the way she shows her characters and brings them to life really, really impressed me. The Saturday paper says this of the characterization in Love Objects. One of the most compelling elements of this accomplished book is Maguire's ability to completely inhabit a character. And as a writer, that's something that I am constantly striving to do. So for all the writers out there who might be listening, I'm sure that you're going to get a, a lot out of this conversation with Emily. I'll also be chatting to Emily when that particular part of the conversation finishes and asking her four curly questions for the Patreon supporters. So if you'd like to hear what Emily's response to that is, along with a whole lot of other Patreons interviews that I've done for the four curly questions, you can find out more about supporting the podcast through Patreon at www.rightsforwomen.com and just click on the Patreon supporters page. So it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Emily Maguire to the Convo Couch. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about Love Objects, in particular the characterisation, because it was one of those books that when I read it, the characters really jumped off the page for me. You know, I felt I could really see them, I could relate to them, and the level at which you sort of develop the psychology behind each of the characters and those interconnections between them really struck me. Thank you. So I guess, first of all, just for listeners, it um, would be good if you could just tell us what Love Objects is about. Yeah, so Love Objects is a story about Nick. She's a middle-aged, tough, smart, 
lifelong and proud checkout chick. She has a safe and happy life living on her own in a little house in Leichhardt in Sydney's inner west. Safe and happy life except that she has so much stuff crowding her home that it literally almost killed her, which is where we start the novel. It's also the story of her niece, Lena, and her nephew, Will, who are young people who are both dodging really considerable problems of their own to come and help their auntie. And in trying to help her, they kind of make things much worse. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting the way all that plays out. I love that that part of the story. So where did the inspiration come from for the, for the book originally? Yeah, sort of two things came together that I'd been wanting to write about for many, many years. So one is hoarding behaviour which is something that I've known several people, still know several people in my life who has what could be described as hoarding behaviour. And I've been really wanting to write a character who has that kind of behaviour and to write a character in a way that works against all of the sort of stereotypes, particularly harmful, shame-inducing stereotypes that we see if anyone's seen uh, TV shows like Hoarders. I was um, watching it last uh, week, actually. Right. <laughs> it came on SBS and I, I, I was thinking yeah. about, you know, just that whole idea of the sort of popular perception, I guess, as we see through reality TV. But then there's a lot more to the whole issue than, than what we see on that surface level, isn't there? Yeah. And so, so there's that TV show and there's, there's an odd case that reaches the news. And for a case to reach the news, it means something really terrible has happened. Someone, someone's died or there's been mm. massive societal intervention. And whereas the people I know with this kind of behaviour don't, sort of fit any of those stereotypes and so so that that was one thing I was interested in writing to to work against those stereotypes but also just out of I guess a wider interest in stuff like our relationship as human beings to stuff because it's something I really noticed that if you ask people what's your relationship to your things almost everyone will say oh I don't care about material things you know (laughs) and yet if you go into their home and whatever kind of home it, it can be completely minimalist, it can be whatever, and you start asking them about specific objects, like tell me about this vase or tell me about this lamp or tell me about this mm. book, people tend to have very strong connections to their things. And it's just in the case of someone with hoarding behaviour, it's many more things, but I think there's something there that most people can relate to. So, mm. so that's all sort of one big thread that I wanted to write about. And then the other thing I'd been wanting to write for, for a long time is actually a kind of a, a love story, not romantic love, but a love story about auntiehood or about an auntie and nieces and nephews. And that's very personal to me. That's the, I've written about that in nonfiction before, but, but I hadn't sort of found a way to, to tell that kind of story in fiction. And it, it is something that I really wanted to explore. And so with this novel, um, yeah, I guess that was the starting point was with someone who had hoarding behaviour and then thinking about when it comes to the point of intervention, who's going to help, who's going to come in, that was the opportunity to, to bring my auntie story in there. Fantastic. So once you've got those two things sort of coming together and thinking, you, you know, you're going to mesh those ideas together, where did the particular characters in Love Objects come from for you? Yeah, so Nick was, was sort of the first main character to me. So, so I should say in the book, as it is now, as three points of view, it moves between the three of Nick, Lena and Will. The, the first draft, or maybe I'd call it a zero draft, the very first rough kind of vomiting out of all the <laughs> ideas around it, that was all Nick. And so she was the character that I really went deep with in terms of my own thinking. And 
with Nick, it was actually a process, so we can talk more about this if you like, but I, I tend to realise that I approach characterization in two seemingly completely opposite ways at different times. So one is outside in and one's inside out. So inside out is when you do all that deep thinking like, you know, what are her deepest shames? What's, you know, what was her childhood like? Like mm. really who is this deeply external person? And therefore, if you understand, like you mentioned psychology in the intro, if you understand the psychology of this person, how will they behave? But then the other way is the opposite of that, which is outside in, which is to just look at the external behaviour and start asking, well, why? Why would someone do that? And that's how I developed me, is really starting with that thing. Of, this is someone who, without knowing anything about them, what she does is she keeps everything. <laughs> she can't throw things out. Mm. She can't get rid of things. She lives in a home that is completely, you know, she she can't move properly throughout that. She can't use her spaces that she has there. And still when she's walking home from work, she's picking up things off the street and bringing them in. I knew this behaviour from, from people with this behaviour that I'd known. And I really wanted to start thinking about with this character what what could be driving that, what could be there. And so that was my starting point for Nick to really start, you know, the novel starts pretty much where the writing started, which was with Nick walking home from work. I just put her in motion and had her notice things on the street around her. And I just started asking questions like, why is she picking that up? Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it just, it really grows from there to, to start giving reasons for that behaviour. Yeah. So are you someone in, in terms of your writing process who, you, do you spend a lot of time thinking about the characters researching that sort of thing before you actually start typing any, any words or putting anything down? No, not before, but often during. So I, you know, it's it's a bit of a back and forth process for me. So so with with this novel, with Nick in particular, I I sort of started writing that early draft or that idea. And that was all imagination and my observation of people who I've known like that. As as I got deeper into it, I was given an opportunity to do some really deep research through the Charles Perkins Institute here at, in Sydney at Sydney Uni. I mean, do amazing deep level, more than I'd ever be able to put into a novel, about hoarding behaviour and the treatment and things that came around that. And that really obviously informed the writing because I wanted to get that right. Nick is an invented individual and mm. she is an imagined creation. But I, I did want this to be a novel that anyone who has hoarding behaviour or loves someone with hoarding behaviour, not that it's going to match their experience exactly because everyone's an individual, but that there wouldn't be anything that was, you know, jarring or ridiculous or out mm. of the realm in there. And, and it also helped me, again, to understand more. So my assumptions about why Nick might pick up this baby's bonnet on the road, I, I you know, gave a good imaginative kind of guess to that. And then as I talked to people who actually have hoarding behaviour and experts in it, I could sort of add some real backed up understanding to that and, and sort of fiddle with my portrayal of her a little bit. And that that's back and forth the whole time. Like I'd talk to an expert or um, go into a hoarder support group and then I'd come back with all these notes and I'm not going to immediately apply them to my character because that is just not how fiction writing works. A lot of that would mm. be really at odds with Nick. But I, but I sort of have that new understanding and then I go to write a scene about Nick and whereas maybe the week before I would have had her react in this way, now it kind of occurs to me, oh, actually, this is who someone who's really thinking like this is going to act and so it feeds in. But 
I need to be doing the writing at the same time to know the answers I need questions to, to know the situations that she's going to be reacting into. Yeah, so it's really that, like you say, that whole backwards and forwards thing, isn't it, all the time throughout that whole process of drafting, revising. With each revision, how how much more were you adding in, I guess, to Nick's character? Actually, not a, not a heap with each revision for Nick. Mm. Uh, with the other characters, which we can talk about probably more so, and I think it's mm. because I did start with Nick. But there were, there were always, and, and again, because it's a novel in which the three are really interacting, then most of the things that were changing about Nick's characterisation in later drafts were because of things that I'd learnt about Lena and Will right. and their wider family that was then being sort of uh, woven back through. So even talking about drafts feels a bit false. Like yeah. I, I did do it as sort of the simplest way to speak. And, there, you know, there definitely are some drafts which feel really discrete, this one thing from start to finish and then I put it aside and all of that. Mm. But also within each of those drafts, there is in my process is quite messy. There is there is quite a lot of going back and forth and changing stuff, except for the first draft, which I tend to write straight through. All of the others that, you know, there's a lot of fiddling within there and yeah. moving back and forth. As you're going, yeah. So I'm imagining that you had that idea from multiple viewpoints fairly early on, but how did Will and Lena then develop for you? So I didn't always know I was going to do the multiple viewpoints. I knew those characters were going to be in there, but I thought at first it would all be Nick's viewpoint. And so we'd only see Lena and Will through her eyes. But it was pretty early on I realised that wasn't going to work for, for a couple of reasons. One is just that it, it was a bit um, claustrophobic to, to have this woman who was, you know, physically in a very cluttered space, but also then as the novel goes on, she, she gets injured, so she can't move around much. Yeah. And it's a big challenge to write an, an interesting, exciting, forward-moving novel with someone who stays still. Um, <laughs> people have done it. It can be done, but I don't know if that was what I wanted to do or could do. So, so that was like a technical problem. But the other thing was that I realised thematically one of the things I was writing about in this novel is how, how much we are or aren't in each other's business or how much we are or aren't um, responsible to each other and even with people who we really love and care about and, and are close to. And this idea that how do you really know someone else? So that, so that I realised each of the characters, how they think of each other is really quite staggeringly different to how each of them thinks of themselves. Mm. So, you know, Lena, for example, is this young woman who when we first hear about her from Nick's point of view, Nick can't believe that she's related to this girl or this young woman who's so smart as far as, you know, Nick's just, she, she loves Lena, she's close to her, she admires her, but she also feels even slightly sort of intellectually intimidated by her because Lena goes to uni and mm. no one in their family has gone to uni. And so to Nick, she's just a wonder. Once we get into Lena's point of view, Lena thinks she's stupid. She has struggled so hard and done an extra year of TAFE to be able to get into a course that her sort of classmates at uni think of as the dumb course that you just get into because you did badly. Mm. So she really sees herself as, as inferior, as not smart enough, as not good enough, and that's sort of her interior story. And I, I felt that was so important with the characters to show this thing that that how well you know someone, how well do you know yourself, which is the true version, which is the true leader. Is it the version that Nick sees her as or is it how, how she sees herself? And 
So, so that's a really long rambly way of saying that I realised I needed to have interiority for, for uh, Lena and for Will as well to be able to have that, to show that, because there was no way of coming that through just with, with Nick thinking things about her niece and nephew. Lena, Lena came quite easily once I understood that and started thinking about it. I, again, drawing from my own life, not in terms of uh, the action or the events that happen in the novel, but sort of in a larger context sense, I am an auntie and I have many, many nieces and nephews who are in the age range of, of Will and Lena, but particularly Lena, young women, older teenage and, and in their early 20s. And so the, the context in which they live as girls and young women in Sydney and the things they confronting and the kind of conversations they have, all of that, that is actually really familiar to me. And when I, when I started thinking about Lena and her situation, yeah, all that came fairly easily. Will, Will was a bit more of a struggle. Will was the character I had the most trouble with. I um, put him in, I took him out, <laughs> I put him back in. He, he came in and out, as a, not as a character, but as a point of view character. And, yeah, the, the, the first time I thought I was finished and I showed the novel to my first reader, my friend Tash, who's also a writer, and her feedback really was, oh, Will, Will is horrible he's terrible and she wasn't insulting my writing she was talking about him as a character yeah and I was horrified because I didn't I didn't mean to write it as horrible he's got some heavy stuff going on he's really struggling but I'd obviously failed to get that across that he's actually not a terrible person he's struggling with a lot of stuff and so that was the character that I had to really really rework to to make how I was thinking about him or more importantly what it's like to be him actually come across better on the page so how did you do that then, Em? Like if you, you've got this situation where you've got this character who's sort of quite different to how you're perceiving him as the author because we're so close to, to our writing and to our characters, how did you then go back with Will and think, okay, what do I need to do to, to make him closer to my own perception, I guess, of how I want readers to see him? Yeah, it's such a hard thing. I felt I knew him really well. And so he was a character that I, I was mostly doing that outside uh, sorry, the inside out kind of technique. So yeah. I knew I knew his auntie Nick. I knew what his family had been through in a larger sense, and through writing Lena really uh, in depth, I knew that their Will and Lena's father had died when they were quite young. I, I knew all this stuff about him before I started writing. I knew he'd gone to jail for a short period, and so I knew all these things about his external life, his past, his internal life, all of this. And he's miserable when the book starts, and I was doing my usual thing of, of trying to get this deep empathy into what that feels like. Like always when I write a character, I guess that's my thing I always come to when I'm actually doing the writing, not research, not thinking about them. It is to as much as possible kind of inhabit that character and just really like physically put myself where they are, think about what does it feel like to be this person in this time. And that just wasn't working for this character because I think, and this is something that, I, you know, I... I'm really interested in talking to people who've read the novel to see if they feel the same way. I think we have a really, really hard time in our culture and society at the moment of hearing men's pain because so many, for good reason, which is that so many men who've done terrible things then try and talk about their pain as a way to excuse what they've done. And yeah. it comes across, you know, you hear every time another Me Too story or a man gets caught doing something terrible, It'll be, well, I was going through this, I was depressed, have sympathy for me. And we're all quite rightly sick of hearing that and sick of hearing about 
his pain when he's the one who's done something terrible. But that means it's become quite hard to actually write about legitimately internal male pain and suffering in a way that's not excuse-making but is just empathy-evoking, I guess. I really felt that difficulty with the, the cultural conversation and with writing from the perspective of a 25-year-old man who actually has really tried to do the right thing and just doesn't have great role models or guidelines for what that is and is struggling with those kind of questions. Will is not someone who was really part of these conversations. He's not on the, like, feminist Twitter, you know. Like he's, no, no, definitely not. <laughs> he's not. This isn't his world, right? So I, I couldn't write him as someone who speaks like that or thinks like that. I had to write him as who he is. But that doesn't mean that I can't show in there that there is an inherent um, decency, I suppose, that is his instinct. And what I needed to do, I think, is, is draw that out more in order to, to actually let readers see this is this kind of person and that the struggle is not him trying to make excuses for something, but this is something else. Sorry, so it's very vague. It's quite, it's quite no, tricky, no, it's a tricky it's area to write about. Yeah. Was one of the things that you did bring out more, because this is certainly something that created empathy for me with Will, was his deep attachment and love for his partner's children and the pain of, of the breakup of that relationship the pain of him not seeing those children anymore was as much as or even more so, you know, was even stronger almost than, than the pain of not being with, with their mother. And, and to me that really struck a, a nerve, you know, that he was someone who, who did have this really genuine love for those kids. Yeah, actually that's a great example because I think in, the, in that earlier draft there was a backstory of him having had that relationship and an ex who had kids who he'd got really close to, but it was a lot further back. Right. And so one of the things I did was make that more immediate, like where we start the novel, that that breakup has just happened. So it did feel more organic, I guess, for him to be really experiencing that fresh grief and really missing those kids in a way that felt less like him whining about something that had happened mm. five years ago yeah. and more just this is what this person is experiencing right now. And then as, as often happens, you'll know this yourself, when, when you're sort of in the guts of something and working through it, then all these, if you're lucky, uh, synchronicities kind of happen mm. and things really start sparking off each other. And it just occurred to me so much that this thing that in the earlier draft had just been another thing that had gone bad for him, it became this really beautiful parallel with his auntie Nick that neither of them knew about, which is mm. one of those things with people not thinking they know each other and not, which is that so much of Nick's. I guess, trauma or, or even just sadness has come from the fact that she is an auntie who loves these kids so much and their mum just moves them away to another state and she mm. just had to miss them because she's not a divorced parent. She doesn't get access to her niece and nephew. Yeah. And she had really grieved, but there's no sort of socially acceptable way to talk about having grief just because your niece and nephew moves to another state, even though for her it was a daily or at least weekly meaningful interaction that she just lost from her life. Yeah, And that had really deeply affected her. And I realised with Will, by making this something that was more immediate to him, that, that was this commonality between them that, that is this thing about how, you know, I think at one stage Nick says something to him like it's, it's the hardest thing is to love someone else's kids. Mm. And that's something that they both do have in common but, but don't realise till quite late that, that you can have this deep 
connection and relationship with children that you can just lose like that because yeah. they're not yours. And yeah. that became such an important thread for him. And then it helped me understand more about who he was and draw out these other threads that were the, I think, I really do think of the three characters. He's the one who's sort of most naturally nurturing and family oriented. But again, there's not a great, there's not great examples in our culture or society or ways forward for men, particularly young men, to be nurturing and family oriented. Mm. They, they can be great dads, that's fine. But outside of that, like in, certainly in my family I grew up in and, and most of the people I know, all family events, uh, it's mostly the women put it together. They're organising yeah, it. And they're the true. ones, if someone's in hospital or someone's sick, they're thinking, oh, do they, do they need me to make something for them? Do they need to, you know, drop off food, pick up the kids, all that. It's still, it's not just that it, that mostly falls to mothers still. It's also in that wider family. It is mostly women who take up that role. And I was thinking for a young man who is sort of really drawn to his family and wanting to care for people and has this real instinct for, for nurturing and care, Again, how does he come into a situation, for example, the situation where Nick is injured, Lena's been the one who was immediately there and has been trying mm -hmm. to sort it out. Is he just going to sweep in like a white knight? I'm in charge now, the man's yeah. here. <laughs> right? That's how it comes across because, for good reason, we see that. Yeah. He's the hero, right? But what if he really is the one who's best at that stuff and wants to take care of his family? How, mm. how does he do that without feeling like he's doing the white knighting? So, so all that came from, yeah, this really thinking about the complexity between, well, really this big question that he grapples with, which is how do you be a good man? That's the backbone of, of his whole characterisation. Do you have a question like that always, M, for your characters? Do you have this thing that they're all exploring, I guess, in their lives that you're looking at in your writing? I I guess I do. It's not something I start out with needing to have, but there, I have quite a few sort of sets of prompts or questions or things that I've sort of built up over the years of writing and also teaching that I, they're like a toolkit and it's mm. just as needs. I'll go to those. Yeah. And, and definitely there's those sort of classic writing, I guess, characterization questions around what is, what does this character really want? What do they really need? All those kind of things I will certainly go back to with characters who aren't working and really and really think about that. I, I'm a, a little bit cautious of using it as a starting point or as just having one question like that for a character because I just think people are more complicated than that. Mm. And almost always, there are exceptions, almost always there's not just one thing that drives us. There might be yeah. one thing at a particular time. There might be one thing that's more important. But very few people, I think, are like, this is my one thing. I mean, I don't know, I'd be much more successful if I had that kind of focus about anything, you know, like this is it, I'm focusing on being fit or this is it, I'm focusing on my career. And that doesn't mean there's not times where my writing is everything and I'm completely in that um, bubble, but but it always gets burst up by other things. There's other yeah, things going yeah. on. And and so, yeah, so certainly with with Will, yes, What? how do I be a good man? How do I do that? Mm. But he does think about that, but it's not like that's driving his behaviour or his thoughts at every moment because he's, yeah. you know, he's got a toothache. He's trying to solve that problem. He doesn't know what's going on. Oh, I really felt the agony of that toothache, <laughs> can I say, too. My God, that just goes on for so long, the poor guy. I was like, please, somebody help this man. <laughs> 
It makes me so happy. I'm such a sadist to hear when people like feel start catching their face when they are reading with, with Will's toothache. But but you know, that's that's the kind of thing that all the ambition or philosophical questions about how to live a good life aside, when you have a really bad toothache and you don't have the money to go to the dentist, that's the problem. That becomes yeah. the problem. Yeah. And and that whole issue of I guess the the economic uh, and social situation of your characters does play into how the story plays out as well, doesn't it, with each of them really? Yeah. So I um, am a, I'm a big fan of the American short story writer Grace Paley, the late Grace Paley, and she said something that I'll, I'll probably slightly mangle the quote, but she said for a story to be interesting to her, it has to involve the questions of blood and money. And by blood, she means family. She means yeah. who are your people? Who are you from? And by money, she, she mostly meant work. Mm. And this is a real thing. She wrote working class characters and she wrote characters and the stories don't have to be about those things. But if they're not part of the context or the background, then to me, I really found that too. I've read novels that are, that are just beautiful in every way and the, the language and the connection to a particular character whatever but they do feel a bit like they're playing out against the green screen mm-hmm. like this yeah. isn't a real world because mostly people have kids they've got to pick up from school or they have childcare they have to worry about or if they don't have kids they've you know they've got jobs and you have to be at your mm. job and you have to call in sick or not call in sick and what yeah. day is your pay coming in or your welfare check or what can you what can you use money to get rid of the problem like a toothache a toothache's horrible for everyone <laughs> It always mm-hmm. hurts. But the amount of time in which you have to live with that pain and allow it to get worse <laughs> is vastly different according to how much money you have. And it seems a little thing, but it is the kind of thing that, that does, like I said, it, it takes over from all the other questions in your life when it goes mm-hmm. on long enough. And that does just come down to money. It really does. I know there's people who would like to say in our society that if you have enough determination or whatever, whatever, you can sort out your problems. But there are still things that come down to some people don't have the money to solve those problems. I mean, obviously, we've all been reflecting on the lessons that COVID pandemic has taught us. And we're, we're right in the depths of mm. the Sydney lockdown now. We're uh, nine, eight, nine weeks in. And one of the things that's so apparent is that the reason that the virus keeps spreading here and can't be contained is that the areas in which it is spreading they are the areas where everyone who does the work that keeps us all alive is happening it's we don't get groceries if those suburbs shut down we don't get any fresh food we don't have aged care workers disability home workers all of this stuff is Mm. showing how incredibly vital we can't just shut down those suburbs on the other hand they're mostly the lowest paid workers in our society and these are the workers who if outside of COVID times if they had a terrible toothache they probably can't get it fixed and if they're really sick they probably will go to work because they don't have any backup and any buffer and to tell any of those stories without acknowledging that reality is is unreal and I obviously I'm working in fiction but it's realist fiction and all of my characters they they have to live in that really literal sense, they have to survive before they can worry about these bigger questions of how we, how we live in a philosophical sense. There has to be first how we live in an actual material sense. Yeah, that whole survival thing, isn't it? You know? and, and what about Lena? So, so there's 
big social questions, I guess, that you're exploring around Lena's character as well. Can you talk a little bit about that and how, how that developed as part of her character? Yeah, so Lena is, I think, as I mentioned, she's the first in her family to go to university. It hasn't been a straight path. She didn't get the mark in year 12 and she had to do a sort of a bridging course at Pace to be able to do that. But now she's finally there. She's a first-year um, student at Sydney University. She's moved away from all of her family in Queensland, which is why she's in touch with Annie Nick, who's her Sydney relative. And she's very isolated without really thinking of herself that way or knowing mm-hmm. that she is. Because, okay, she's got her auntie, she's got her mum on the phone, she's living in just off university accommodation. So there's, pe- there's people all the time around her. She's sort of never on her own. But there's not really anyone around her that she feels herself with. I think it's pretty common, particularly at that age, to not realise that that's not normal. I think from talking to a lot of young people and remembering myself at that age, I remember really strongly feeling if anyone actually knew me, I would lose everything, right? No one (laughs) would like me anymore. And I don't think I had it like clear conscious in those words, but it was this constant sense of keeping up some yeah. kind of front, right? And that that is Lena, I think. She's she's always kind of keeping up a front. She meets a guy who massively attracted to, really feels like she can let us guard down a little bit with him, maybe not telling her a whole life story, but in some ways she hooks up with him, has an amazing time, excellent, great sex, exactly what we'd all wish for a young woman in her situation yeah. and then discovers that he's he has really badly betrayed her by filming that encounter without her consent so she's then grappling with I guess this really made very manifest these deepest fears mm. about if anyone really saw me I would be so ashamed this this becomes a quite literal thing where people are watching and sharing around a video of her at her most exposed mm. and she um, makes some attempts to deal with that, but as you know, all of us have been told and tell our kids and nieces and nephews growing up now, anything that's out on the internet, it's really hard to ever get it back. Yeah, and it's just out there. And so she is confronting this problem that she actually can't really solve, which I think is one of the things that, as much as she wants to help her auntie Nick with her problem with the overcluttered house, it it is also helping her with her problem in as much as she can not think about her own problem that seems unsolvable and she can put herself to work on something that seems much easier, which is just throwing stuff out. Yeah, yeah. And, and I have to say, I mean, I've got daughters who are, my youngest one is nearly 21 and the others are 25 and 28. And, you know, there's, of course, been all the stuff around for years now about be careful on the internet, you know, whatever. But reading Lena's story, you it was so real and felt so authentic that it really brought home to me the realities of the the world that young women are living in you know that that they do have to face all this sort of stuff quite often in their lives yeah I found her quite lovely to write as a character I yeah. like, enjoyed her company so to speak but I did find writing some of that so like probably the most distressing of anything in the novel again because I have uh, women that age in my life do I care about so much and, and just as a general principle of how awful it is. And something, so so the the hookup scene is very yeah. explicit and I know that's a bit much for some readers and they think, well, why why all this? 
why is it this explicit? And I did go back and forth on that too. But but what I realised was that, you know, hopefully readers will will go with me. It's, it's chapter mm. two. I did tell my dad, who my, my dad is blind and he listens on audiobook. I did tell him okay. to skip chapter two. Um, you'll pick <laughs> up the story, it's fine. <laughs> I thought for him specifically, it was probably too much. But um, I realised I really needed it to be that detailed and specific because I wanted it to be really crystal clear that she was empowered is the cliched word, that she really mm. was in, in the sex itself. And it's yeah. not having sex with a boy she likes that has actually caused any of this distress or pain. She had a good time. It made her feel great. Mm. It was consensual. There was nothing actually wrong with what she did. And actually the, the shame here and the, the awfulness comes after the fact. Yeah. When, you know, he chose to to do something without her consent after that. And I when I when I tried versions where we didn't really see or experience the sex from Lena's point of view, that was more of a our oh, reader can make a judgment here that she's been sort of exploited or whatever from the start. And it was really important to me that no, these are two different things. There's there's a, a young woman doing what most of us will tell the young women in our lives to do which is be true to yourself, have fun, explore your sexuality, be safe. You know, she insists on safe sex. She does all the yeah. right things. Yes. Don't do anything you don't want to do. She doesn't. She speaks up when there's stuff happening she doesn't like. She does all those things. And she is this, you know, quote, unquote, sexually empowered young woman. And then this thing happens to her that is really not to do with that. Yeah. And, of course, the the guy that she's with too, you know, we see him the way that she sees him before that happens. You're sort of almost cheering them on like, yeah, this is lovely. She's met this gorgeous guy and, you know. It's, and they're into each other. Like that's yeah. the real chemistry that they yeah. have. Yeah. But then, of course, there's that betrayal, you know, that this guy isn't who he seems and, and he's caught up with this whole frat type thing that's going on my daughter actually for a period of time lived in America and she didn't live in a frat house but she was very involved with you know going to parties and everything where a lot of that sort of stuff went on and reading what happened in Love Objects I thought yeah that, this must happen a lot and 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 not even that particular thing happening but just that that girls young women have to deal with this stuff and and it has to almost be part of their conscious behavior to think well what if this happens or what if that happens? And it, and it really made me quite sad that, you know, that is part of, of the modern, I guess, or the, the the existence of young women now. Yeah, it's, it's really sad. I find it really sad and because the alternative is like, okay, how could have Lena avoided that situation? Mm. Well, it's to just not take her attraction to this guy who likes her and she really likes any further, right? Yeah. It's just to shut herself off from that experience of life because just in case. Yeah, it's to assume that every boy you like or man you like is going to do something awful to you. Yeah, how do we live like that? <laughs> you yeah, can't no, ask young awful. women to live like that. Yeah. We don't want to live like that. But any hint of shaming or blaming young women when something like this happens—that is sort of saying you should have had the gates all mm. the way up and and not let anyone in. And that that is such a sad thing to be mm. teaching young people. And I love that you later develop that further, you know, where he comes back into the story when he's trying to make amends and stuff like that. I, I like that you you didn't just sort of leave that relationship with him there. Yeah, which is which is really important, right? Because, I mean, he is probably the closest the book has to a villain in that he mm. does a sort of villainous thing. But he's, 
he's not really a villain. He's a kid, really. Mm. He's a young man. Mm. He's acting like a kid. He's acting in a way that he's trying to impress certain people he wants to impress. Now, to me, if we take it out of the fictional realm and into the real world about this thing happening in real life, it's, it's very often the case that these situations wouldn't happen, people wouldn't do these things if they weren't part of a culture that in some way told them it's okay or even it's yeah. great. Yeah. And, yes, the individuals have to take responsibility, absolutely 100%. But if we just say, well, it's this one villainous, monstrous man, and if we mm-hmm. weed him out, everything's good. That doesn't help. We have to actually look at that whole culture of complicity in which, in this case, and I think in something we've seen in sort of sports, football cases, things like this, yeah. the situations where the, the culture of homosocial bonding, to use another term that none of my characters would use, <laughs> is such that it can be seen as acceptable, even desirable, to victimise another person in order to show that you're part of the team or mm. a group, which is what's going on here. And every one of those individuals has responsibility, but if we just talk about one of them as being a bad apple, we, we're really losing an opportunity to, to talk about what needs to change in these cultures. Mm. Yeah, I'm just thinking as we're talking about this, you're sort of looking at your characters in terms of their individual psychology, then their relationships with those people they're closest to, you know, their their family and their close friends, but then also looking at that the next level up is that wider society and how how each character operates within that those cultural mores, I guess. This is the thing I've been thinking about lately. The the project I've just started, which I'm not going to talk about because it's too fragile right now, mm. but I will say it's historical. And I've never written a historical novel before. So it's a whole whole new okay. world as as you know well. But one of the things, of course, when you're writing historical fiction or even thinking about it is you do have to not have your characters act anachronistically, right? Like like a a 19th century woman or 17th century woman or 13th century woman. Yeah. Each of them is not just this is where I live and who my friends are and who my family is. It's also how how they think. Mm. And we, we can't pretend that they can possibly think like us, right? Because they just don't have that context yeah. of what is what kind of behaviour is is okay, is good, is acceptable, is even in the realm of possibility. You can't have a century, thirteenth century French girl who can decide I'm going to travel the world, and that she yeah. can do that, and everyone will go, "Good luck, here's some money, off you go." You know, <laughs> things that just aren't possible. And yet, I think in a lot of contemporary fiction, maybe that same kind of thought doesn't go into mm. because. It's easy to think, well, I'm a contemporary person. Just They'll just think how I think. Yeah. But we're all products of our environment. We're all products of our culture. We're all products of our family, um, our religion, if that's part of our background. There's all these different uh, things that come into thinking, what even seems possible for me? I mean, it's one thing with my characters that, um, again, my one of my early readers said to me, um, just like a joking aside, not actual literary criticism, I just want to tell them all to go to therapy. <laughs> I thought, well, that's kind of the point, isn't it? These aren't people who go to therapy. Yeah, this is not a family right. that anyone has ever been to therapy. And it just would seem such a weird thing to do for them. Yeah. Even though for some people that's the first thing you do when something goes wrong in your life. It's just not part of their cultural context. Mm. It's, okay, this happens, this sucks, get on with it. So 
I mean, we have sort of touched on this, I guess, in the in our conversation already. But backstory is very important in it in developing who the characters are, and and letting the reader understand that. But how do you go about weaving that backstory in and into your characterization? So, backstory is the rightly consideration, right? It's it's how yeah. we talk about that yeah. part of the narrative. It's the technical term. In terms of thinking about characters, in terms of thinking about human beings, our backstory is just us, right? It's just who we are. Like I don't carry around a backstory. I am just who I am Mm. because of how I've lived and and what my past is. So it's I guess there's two equally important ways of thinking about it. So one is when I'm thinking about characterisation, thinking about who these people actually are and why they're the way they are. And that is... What have their life experiences been? That's sort of everything. It's not, it's not their backstory, it's their story. Mm. You know, Will is someone whose father died of cancer when he was quite young and then he made a terrible mistake and got sent to jail for a few years. On the page, it's backstory because those events happen before the book starts. Yeah. So that's a technical writing challenge. How do I get that story, that information across to the readers without just having endless flashbacks, right? That's a technical challenge for a writer. But in terms of thinking about that character, I think it's really important to remember that it's not backstory. It's just who he is. I I think there's a thing, and because the technical fix is often right, you find a point in the story where it seems a pretty logical thing that now Will will be reminded of the day he got arrested and think about that. So that's sort of the technical thing of here's where I'm going to put that little flashback of him getting arrested because in the forward-moving story, this is where he would logically think of it. And that's sort of how I do it on the page, yeah. to let the reader know. But if you overdo that, it starts to feel so false because it's like something as big as that, I don't think you go through your life with it ever not really being in some way mm. part of who you are. There are certain things, certainly things that um, I will forget about and then something will remind me and I'll stop and go to my husband, oh, I just remembered this thing that happened like at school or whatever. That does happen. But I think often in fiction it can be so false that people are like, I'm 100% fine going forward and then now suddenly I remembered that my mum's dead. It doesn't really work like that. If you Mm. have a grief, it's always with you. And so the technical challenge is to find ways to get that information across to the reader with it feeling quite natural without it being suddenly I remembered I had a car accident. Suddenly I remember, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it is a different technical challenge than it is actually an understanding of people. Yeah. So do you use dialogue to some extent to do some of that as well? Yeah, definitely use dialogue. Probably less than less than other techniques because dialogue gives you the as you know bob problem Mm. which is that thing of people saying things that the other character they're speaking to already knows and that again in conversation like if i were to say to you as you know pam you also are a writer who has written several books in order to (laughs) it doesn't um, really have that ring of truth about it does it it's not really how we talk most of the time so a little bit in dialogue, I think, can be helpful if someone's, you know, if someone's meeting someone new and they're telling them mm. information, then great. I do tend to write a fair bit of internalised mm. thoughts. 
you know, that is my writing style and and certainly the, the style of this novel that it, it's, we spend a lot of time in the characters' heads and I get a lot of that in there. But again, I think you've got to be careful because you can really lose the reader. Yeah. If we just like having a character who stays physically still the whole time, if it's a character who's just thinking about themselves the whole time, it's a big ask for a reader to, to just yeah. keep going along with that. So for me, the biggest thing is to, is to break it up, to not have huge dumps of, mm. of backstory and, and to find ways to think about there, there are certain things that are evidence in our everyday life that, that speak of our past and to just have that be part of the present and part of things moving forward. It's not applicable to every situation. But, for example, Will, with his father's death, which was terrible for him, and then his mother remarrying really quickly, he still has a relationship with his mother. So whenever he talks to her on the phone and this is the story moving forward, there can be little references and snippets that start to fill in that backstory of what happened after his yeah. father died because that is really raw and immediate in that moment. And then as the reader is working their way through the novel, you're then starting to put together all those little pieces that you're, you're feeding through in those different situations. And I, and I guess too, I, I do come back a lot to the thing of getting to know characters can be a bit like getting to know people just mm. in real life. When you, uh, you know, when, when I think about or writers that I work with will say to me, you know, how much does the reader need to know right up front about this character? I do think it's a bit like how much you need to know about a person that you're meeting. Yeah. If they suddenly blurt out everything, here's this trauma that happened when I was six, here's, here's this, here's this, here's this, here's this, that's a very specific kind of person. And I'm not saying don't do that in a novel because yeah. I reckon that could be an incredible narrator, someone who straight away is like... Oversharer. Right? <laughs> very much. And, and obviously like, straight away you get on guard as a reader, like, oh, this is really interesting and juicy. Why is she telling me all this? I want to know what's really, you know, this kind of thing. But for most people, most of the time, we, we do start with the external or we, we start, we meet someone for a reason. Like I met you because I think we met through Room to Read. As yeah. you know, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's the first thing I know about you is just that you're involved in this same charity, in this same yeah. not-for-profit as I am. And then as I get to know you more, I know some of your work and then I might mm. know some of your home life and then eventually... There, there could be occasion for us to go deeper than that. And that's what happens with characters too. Yeah. And it's condensed because uh, it's artificial and it's on the page and you need to find something to really hook the reader in and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of having to know everything about someone straight up front to care about them or to want to know more, mm. that's just that's actually not how getting to know people works. Yeah, that's a really good way of, of looking at it is, is thinking about it in terms of how you do get to know people in real life. I love mm-hmm. that. The other thing that comes up, not so much, I guess, in literary novels, but a lot in commercial fiction is this idea of likability around characters. So, you know, all of your characters, as all characters or should be, and definitely as we are as people, are all flawed. How conscious are you of that in creating your characters? And like when your friend said to you about Will, oh, no, he's just horrible. Like, how do you handle this whole idea of flaws and likability with your characters? Yeah, um, it's such a huge question and conversation. I think about this and talk about this all the time. So with my first couple of books, I had no idea about anything. (laughs) Like I was a very (laughs) amateur writer in the in the best possible way, like writing from love and not thinking about any of this stuff. Yeah. And that there's good sides and and bad sides to that. 
But one of the things that I, I really kind of confronted me was when I started getting asked to do events and things and festivals, I kept being put on panels like unlikable characters. And <laughs> I remember one was like, freaks and misfits. And I was kind of like, so I was just writing about people like me. It's quite confronting. It made me feel a bit like a lot of empathy for uh, memoir writers who might be told this is an unlikable narrator. It's like, it's literally me. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> so at least my characters weren't literally me. So it's quite funny because I think obviously I know what people are talking about, especially the more commercial end of fiction when they talk about likable. Mm. I, I know what that means as a, as a reader and as a literary person. But I also think even with that in mind, that sort of genre restriction of what readers might want to get out of the book, which is basically to be able to root for the character, right? To be mm. able to feel, if not total empathy or approval for them, you, you want them to have a good outcome. You think they deserve it yeah. and you like spending time with them on the page. I mean, I think that's basically what that means, the likability. Yeah, yeah. The, the issue I come up against all the time in my own writing is that is not a set measure, right? Like who I find likable and want to spend time with could be quite different to who you find likable mm. and want to spend time mm. with. For me, when a character is too perfect... I might find them likable. I'm sure I'd find them likable as a friend. I'm sure it's great to have someone around who only ever does the right thing and is endlessly kind, thoughtful. Kind of annoying though, could I say? It could be annoying. <laughs> could be annoying, but, you know, it's, it's not nice people are nice, right? Yeah, I try yeah, and be nice. Yeah, I think yeah. kind people are nice. Nice people are nice. Uh, there's no disputing that. Um, they're not necessarily that interesting mm. if that's all there is to them and all they do. And I think most people agree with that. I actually don't think readers, even if they want someone who they might use that shorthand of saying likeable, I think they do want someone who at least makes mistakes. Yeah. So we, we need to at least have that in there because the other thing is if you're going to have conflict in a novel, which most novels do need to have conflict, it means there's something happening, mm. something to work against. Either the character has made a mistake or a series of mistakes or something has happened to them that's out of their control or usually, ideally, over a whole length of a novel, both, both right? Yeah. So it might be that something they can't help happens at the start. There's some kind of catastrophe. But then if they just keep handling that perfectly and everything goes perfectly well, either there's no story because mm, mm. it's fine or they are a continual victim. Things just keep yeah. happening to them no matter what. And so for a character to have no flaws and never make a bad decision... To me, that is a lot like writing a character who is just everybody's victim all the time until eventually they win. And, and that's not for me. Mm. It might be for some, but as a reader and as a writer, that's not for me. I want to have a character who is it's likable to me, I guess. This is a very long-winded way of saying I find likable and appealing people and characters who try. Mm. And trying can mean sometimes really stuffing things up or making bad choices, but not just lying down and letting stuff happen to them yeah I think the more someone tries the more often it is that they will fail that's true of writing too yes <laughs> but I find that likable I like people who try and I like characters yeah. who try yeah so taking action of some kind taking action yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess to, to just refer directly to my novel again with Lena something we sort of talked around but I don't think it's really a spoiler is that Lena decides that how she'll help her auntie is while her auntie is in hospital, Lena is going to clean out her house mm. of the hoard. 
Anyone who understands hoarding behaviour knows that this is actually the worst thing you can do. It, it, it is incredibly trauma-inducing thing to do. It's not the way to handle this. Lena, being 20, being preoccupied, just wanting to take action because she can't solve her own problem, mm. she doesn't do research into hoarding disorder. She just starts chucking stuff out. Yeah. She is trying to solve that problem. She makes everything worse. She really causes real harm. And writing her, I had times of feeling so angry at her because my empathy was filled with Nick and I had to really yeah, work on getting yeah. it back with her. But the thing is, I think she is trying to do something. She's trying to actually help the situation and help herself feel better. And that to me is more likable and, and probably more importantly, more interesting mm. than if she just sat on the floor in the midst of it all and cried for 350 pages. Absolutely. And and understandable too. You know, she does just want to fix it. She wants to fix the problem. And as you say, part of that is a distraction from her own problems, but very much coming from a place of love for her auntie, you know, like, well, she can't have all this stuff there. We've got to get rid of it for her. Yeah. And, yeah. and how often in real life are the conflicts that most hurt you in your family or loved ones? Not because someone's done a mean, nasty thing. Mm. It's because they've done a thing that they think's the right thing. Yeah. And you just don't agree. <laughs> Yeah. So they've messed up and they've really hurt you or hurt someone else. But it's coming from an intention of I felt like I needed to do something. And yeah. I, I find that interesting and I don't dislike people who try stuff, even if I might sometimes be personally annoyed or angry at them. Mm. And, and as you say, more interesting to write and I think more interesting to read as well. Yeah. So much great stuff in here. But one thing that has struck me as we've been talking and I have spoken to authors who have difficulty with this is being mean or well, what they perceive as being mean to their characters, you know, and people <laughs> say, I can't do that to them, my character, because I don't want to hurt them more. What's your point of view on that? I think I do have that rightfully flint of ice in my heart. I don't find it as hard, I think, as some writers do, but I've worked with writers who I know find it really hard. I think... I think something to come back to is that even though you might love your characters, like your friends, you actually, as a writer, want to want things to be opposite in terms of how you react to something. So, for example, if I had a close friend who was going through a crisis at work, I might deliver some food that I'd made to her house so she didn't have to worry about cooking for the next two weeks. I might say, I'll pick your kids up from school every day. This is all out of lockdown when mm. these were still problems. But, you know, yeah, I will yeah. be thinking of things as a friend. How do I make this one crisis she's having at work easier? Yeah. As a writer, I'm going, how do I make this even harder? Mm. Because that's going to be more interesting. How do I make, I don't know, what's the opposite of that? Her kid gets expelled from school. Yeah, <laughs> she has yeah. to have them with her all the time. And the oven breaks or whatever it is. Yeah, whatever it's they'll make things problem. worse. Yeah. It make everything worse. And then the way I guess I live with that in terms of I really like her and don't want to see her go through this is this comes back to this likability thing in a weird way. I want to see what she's made of. Mm -hmm. I don't want that for people in my life. The last thing I want mm -hmm. for anyone I actually love is to have to see how much they can take. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see. I don't want to know how much my sisters can take. I want their life to be yeah. easy. <laughs> My characters, I get to say, I really love this character. I think she's great. Let's see how she's going to be resilient and heroic and come out of this. And yeah. I'll only know that if I really, really push her right to the point. Mm -hmm. It's that thing of putting them under pressure, isn't it? And, and seeing the only way we'll know what they're made of. Yeah. And, and that is, you do have to have a bit of a, a slither of ice, I think. But it's, it's for this 
it's for this benefit, which is actually seeing what they're made of. I yeah, think. yeah. Yeah, well, so much great information, Em, that you're you're sharing with us. But just to finish up in the intro, I, I read out the the quote from the Saturday paper about love objects, which talks about how well you inhabit the characters in this novel. And I know that it's very hard to reduce it down to a formula, but are there any suggestions you've got for how people can go about doing that thing of getting into their character's skin? One thing that I do when I'm really early in writing a book, but also on and off while I'm deep in it as well, I guess, is I will actually try and get this sort of double consciousness while I'm going about my daily life. So this is one of the ways, one of the things I talk to my own writing students about often, they're they're people who are doing a part-time night course, right, because they have whole busy lives already. So one of the big things is how to have time. So this is a Mm. double tip because it's about time too. So one of the ways is to work on your novel while you're doing everything else in your life. And the thing is to have this double consciousness. So say with Nick, I will be going about doing all the stuff I had to do in my day and everything I was noticing or reacting to, I would also be thinking, how would Nick react to this? Mm. And most of them are going to be situations that aren't going to come into the book, but it really helps me feel like I know a character. So when I was writing the first draft, I was catching a, a daily bus on a particular route, a city bus where it seems to attract all the most dramatic incidents that happen on Sydney buses. <laughs> You're always yeah. on this particular bus <laughs> on this route. And I have my own reactions of how I deal with conflicts or people behaving in an inappropriate or a weird way in public. But I would also then make myself, while also trying to navigate that situation, whether in the moment or straight afterwards, I'd think, what would have mixed up in that situation? Mm-hmm. And I never wrote a scene with her having to respond to something on a bus. I did write something with Lena having to respond to something on a bus and her thinking, what would Annie Nick do? And so it did give me a scene, but it also gives me a sense of who is Nick? Is she someone who confronts people in public? Is she someone who can chat to a stranger next to her without stopping or she just wants to read a book? And the thing she notices, of course, because she picks stuff up to take home. But but with any character, you can do that. I think if, if you are writing in deep history or in a science fiction world, it can be more difficult in terms of the kind of situations. But the emotional response is the same. What When I'm in a coffee shop dreaming of a time I can do that again yes. um, and my order is wrong but I can see they're really busy and harried in the kitchen, how do I react to that? But then also how does my character, mm. are they flipping the table? <laughs> are they yelling? <laughs> are they just eating something they hate because it's in front of them? And, again, it might not end up in your book but just living with your character in this way, sitting at the traffic light, you're just noticing when's it changing, I'm in a hurry, what are they noticing? Mm-hmm. If they're a detective, who are they looking at in the area around them? What what are they noticing? And just just to like literally inhabit the consciousness, that inner sense of how they are in the world, not just how they are in the specific scenes that you have set out for them. That's great advice. How did you feel at the end? You know, when you when it, it actually you'd finished doing all the revisions and there was no more work to be done and <laughs> it was off to be published. How did you feel about leaving your characters? <laughs> I, I do miss them. I do. I am someone who misses my characters when yeah. I finish the book. Well, I should probably more specifically, I miss, I miss being uh, embedded in that world with them. I, I yeah. do really love being part of a fictional world and, and being able to put myself in there each day. And and I, yeah, with I, I think in some ways this is the kindest book I've written. I think in mm. terms of how I've dealt with the characters and all that. I think that's a, a, probably a whole other conversation. It's sort of softer and and for that reason it did feel like a, a loss, yeah. 
Well, as I said, I, I love the book and I thought it, you did such a great job with the characters and I know that listeners are going to get so much out of our conversation. We are going to have another short conversation on our four curly questions about writing, which will be for the Patreon yeah. supporters. But thank you so much for this chat about characterisation, Em, and all the best with your new work that you're working on. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening, have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>